One of the things as Alex was singing just made me think. And one of the lines of the song, it says, whom you love, I'll love. And I think sometimes we can take our belief in, in God and that becomes one that becomes exclusive. Whom you love, well, I'm only going to love who you love. But really the intention is I'm going to love everyone that you love and, and God loves perfectly and completely. And so God actually loves more than we do, not less. And I think that's an important thing to recognize and understand about the character of God. As we move through the scripture, if we don't keep that thought when we see things of judgment or uh, hard things in, in scripture, if we don't have the backstory of God's love, then it can be tainted and we can use our framework to interpret those things instead of God's. And I think we do that a lot. So we're going to continue in Second Samuel chapter 23. We're going to finish it today. At least that's the plan. Second Samuel chapter 23. Last week we looked at a song that David had written in his older years and David is about 70 years old now, and that's not old, at least I don't think so. At one time I would have, but it's not that old anymore, but he's nearing the end of his life. David has lived a rough life. He has been out on the battlefield. He has been running for his life. He's had positions of responsibility and authority. And all these things weigh on a person. And so at 70 years or so of age, David is coming to an end. And as we start to read these things, we start to see really the end of his life and the last things that are going to take place. And so it starts off, these are the last words of David. And what it means by last words is probably his final speech publicly. Um, it's not really that this is the last thing David ever said, but it's the last public thing that he made, an address that was recorded anyway. The inspired utterances of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the men exalted by the most, the man exalted by the most high, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. So a little understanding of who he is. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when one rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. And so here is this poetic declaration by David saying the spirit of the Lord's on him and gave him these words and the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules his people in righteousness or with justice, it might say, when he rules in the fear of God, when a person is in this position and the idea of ruling in justice 
is so important. It's caring about what is right. When a person has authority, then they are going to be a person who does what is right for others. That's justice. That's righteous. And so once again, we see David understanding that the posture of God is one that is wanting what is right for people, what is just for people, is wanting this declaration for others. And so here he is saying, the one who's going to do this rules in righteousness. And then he also says rules in the fear of God. And again, this is an expression that strikes us usually a little bit strange because the idea of fear to us is a little bit, well, like, you know, movies that you see that are like The Conjuring or something. It's like, oh, that's fearful. You know, that's something scary. But it's not really meant to be that kind of afraid. It's more an awareness that God has interest in what you do. It's acknowledging that there is someone who you are responsible to who cares about what you do. That's the fear of God. It's the standard of life that God desires for you to live in. And so a lot of other things can you know, come and go, and we could be swayed by a lot of things, but are we swayed by being considerate and just towards others? Are we swayed by knowing that we answer to God for the lives that we live and what we're going to do? And so that's the meaning of these things, the righteousness of you know, walking the people in righteousness and rules in the fear of God. And then he gives what that does. If a person has these characteristics, if a person has this frame of mind, if a person is living in this life, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Doesn't that just sound fresh? Just like... You know, that smell, and you can smell when it's raining, you know, when the, the rain comes down, it's in the air. It's talking about this refreshing, it, it causes clarity. It, it's There's no clouds, you can see perfectly clear, the rain has just washed all the cloud or the moisture away, and it's just crystal clear, and it's refreshing. That's what a person is who rules in Righteousness and fears the Lord. What a picture. What a beautiful picture. And in this picture, there is such um, an absence of what I would call domination or power. There, there's such uh, an absence of this control, but there is freedom that there is ruling in a way that is caring and in a way acknowledges that there is responsibility. And that's refreshing. And that's clear. And it gives us understanding. Any thoughts just on that picture? Anything stand out to you guys in those verses? Okay, we'll move on because there's some things going to stand out to us here tonight. If my house were not right, verse 5, with God, surely he would not have made me, made with me an everlasting covenant. 
arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. And so this is actually going along what he's saying. If things weren't right with me, and we know David's acknowledging actually that he had issues, but God has brought about salvation and has granted him the desires. In other words, even though my house was faulty, if God was still displeased with me, then he wouldn't have given me this position and put me in this place to have the rule over his people and to be used in his lineage to be what the Messiah was going to come from, arranging this part. And he wouldn't have been brought to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men, those who don't, fear God. Don't acknowledge what is right and what is just. Those who are living for their own gain as opposed to the justice or recognition that someone is always, they're always responsible to someone. Evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered by the hand. And the image is that you can't pick them up with your hand or they'll hurt you. Thorns, they're, they're gonna, they'll stick you, okay? And that's kind of what he's saying, you know, the people who just care about themselves, they're gonna stick it to you. They're, they're going to bring harm to you. That, that's the picture that he's bringing about. And then he says, whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. And so now he's saying to get rid of these people who are evil, these evil leaders, sometimes you have to use force. Sometimes they won't leave, and he's talking about force being used. You can't just pick them up with your hands. You actually have to get a, a shaft of the spear, and you might have to overthrow this. I'm sure someone could use this for Second Amendment rights if they wanted to. But anyway, he's talking about just having that position, that if a person is unjust or evil, this is what's going to happen. And so that's kind of his last declaration. Those are his last words, what he says. And again, they're picturesque, they're telling. And in a person of David's position who was a leader, who had gone through a lot of things, these are some of the things that stood out to him, which I think are interesting because he recognizes the need for righteousness, the need to fear the Lord. And he sees or has seen through those who tried to rule that power, whether it was Saul or Absalom, the others who tried to take that power, what happened to them? And he saw the reality. And I think it's interesting that even in society today or the world today, whenever you have a government that's oppressive, people don't stay in that position. They might be forced in that position, but time comes where they try and find a way out. If people don't like how they're being treated, they're going to do what is necessary to be treated differently. And that's why you have revolutions. That's why you have changes of government. It's not because, well, everyone's happy. No, if everyone's happy, they wouldn't care. But when people are being mistreated and misused, then usually something stirs within them and they desire something better. And so then they have these kinds of things take place. So now he goes into his mighty warriors. And this is really interesting because 
This is a reflection of those who have been by his side throughout all these years, through the times of difficulty. I mean, these people, these mighty men were originally described as distressed, discontent, and in debt. Okay, that was their original title. These were the guys who were distressed. They were um, discontent and they owed money. These are the mighty men. That's the origin, okay? So there's hope for some of us. All right, we might find, I could be a mighty man. I I qualify. Look at, I'm in debt. I'm discontent and I'm distressed about all of that. So, but these are the mighty men. And he's telling them, and I think it's interesting because even though God has ordained David to be in a position, the kingdom was built on the shoulders of these men. The, the kingdom was held by these mighty men. They were the ones who put the feet to the actions, the, the hard work, the difficult things, to all the things that took place. And, and we'll look at some of them and talk about them a little bit. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bashebeth, a Tehekamanite, I think. He was chief of the three. And so now we're seeing delegation take place. This guy was over the three. We're going to find out who the three were, and then we're going to find out more. So this guy is the chief over the three. Now, why was he the chief over the three? He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. That's why. Okay? What did you do? I killed 800 guys. You got the job. Okay, this is a person who was powerful, strong. And so this is a person who David takes, seeing his ability, he puts him in a position of responsibility. And even though we're talking in terms of war here, I I think it's important for us to recognize David was very good at ruling because he put people in positions who could do the job. And so he took a man who was strong, who was a person of ability, and put him in a position of responsibility. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Hathothai. Yeah, anyway, as one of the three mighty warriors. So you've got the chief, and here's one of the three. And so now we're seeing from the chief, there are these other three guys. They have other responsibilities. They're not the chief, but they are special. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pass Damon for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. And so this guy is someone who is resilient, someone who is enduring, someone who didn't give up, someone who didn't quit. Others turned away. This guy did not. He stood his ground so much that his hand was frozen to a sword. He couldn't let go. 
And so one of the people that David wanted to be in these three was a person who was resilient, a person he could trust would be there through the thick and the thin. If you're going to develop a leadership, whether it be for a community of faith or whether it be for a business, whatever it would be, you need people who are resilient. You need people who aren't going to quit and run every time it gets difficult because life gets difficult, work gets difficult, churches get difficult. When that happens, you need to be able to count on people. When the chips are down, when the finances are bad, when the complaints are high, when there's a lot of distress going on, you need someone you can count on. And so Eliezer was one of those kinds of guys. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Herite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field of lentils, full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. This guy was determined, okay? The, the lentils or a field full of these lentils is at a time of harvest. In other words, this is something that needed to be protected. This was valuable. This was happening at a time where if they lost this field, they were losing a resource, and this person was determined to keep that resource. And so here's a person who is able to, to see the value of something and not quit when something is of value. And so this guy in this middle of this battle, when everyone else was leaving, he says, no, this field is full of lentils. This is valuable. This is food for us. This could be monetary gain for us when we harvest it and sell it. This is something valuable. I'm not going to quit. And so we see that David is positioning people in this place of leadership who have these abilities. And that's what gives them the responsibilities. It goes on. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went and risked their lives, and David would not drink it? And so these three men were people who were loyal, were people who were faithful. These are the guys who cared about him personally. They didn't just have a lot of ability. Their heart was in it. And if you're going to find people to, to build something with, you want people who are going to be with you. And so if you're in a position to lead, you need people who have these abilities, but you really need people who care, who care about you and care about the things that are taking place. Because it's easy to get people to be a part of something when it's going, when it's moving. 
when the money's there, when the prestige is there, when there's a lot of you know excitement in the air, people are going to be there. But what you really need are people who are with you to be able to do that and to care for those things. And so it's real important that we see that these people weren't just anybody. They were people who David really brought near to him. Gloria wants mommy. Sorry, Dad. You're not going to cut it. I need mom. And so these people went and risked their lives and brought back this water for David. And David took the water and offered it basically to the Lord for these guys and saying what they've done is, is more valuable than the water itself. And such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Okay, so you had the chief and then you had the three. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three. So there's the chief and then there's the other chief. There's the three. And so, you know, it's amazing how many chiefs you can have. I remember one time going into a tire place to get some work on, on my tires, and everyone had a tag that said assistant manager. And there were five assistant managers there. And I was like, okay, <laughs> who's the manager? You got a lot of assistants here. But it, it's amazing how when people rise up, you find a place for them. You find a position for them because there is always things that can be done. And so Abishai was chief specifically of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? I guess so. So the three were held in pretty great honor, but this guy was held in better honor because he had this one battle, killed the 300. He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. I just, I see, do you see there's being these divisions put? Here's you guys, here's you three, here's the chief over you three. You got a little bit more recognition to them. You're not with them, but you're a little bit better than them. And so this is kind of taking place, showing us David's, you know, leadership, really. Verse 20. Benaniah, son of Jehida, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaniah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaniah, son of Judiah. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. I want you to be my personal bodyguard. Now, this guy is amazing. Okay, there's a book. Uh, Mark Batterson wrote a book basically on this guy. It's called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. It's a great book if you get it. And one of the things that he brings out about Benaniah is Benaniah is one of these guys who is looking to do something. I mean, in verse... 20, it says, he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed the lion. Why would you do that? You don't need to go down in the pit. Hey, there's a lion in the pit. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down there and kill it. If the lion's in the pit, I'd leave it in the pit. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there's a lion. Good. It's in a pit. I'm up here. 
I can move away. Not Benaniah. He saw this lion. He says, I wonder if I can kill that lion in the pit. And it was on a snowy day, which means there is not good traction. This was a guy who was stepping into danger because, well, that's the, the question, isn't it? Why? Why would you want to do that? Why would you go up against an Egyptian who has a spear and you just have a club? Why would you take on these things? He saw these things as challenges that he needed to meet. And so here was a guy who had this aspiration to achieve, to do something, who was aggressive in his posture with these things that were before him that would normally to most people be seen as hindrances. To him, they became opportunities. They became challenges. And something about people who take things that are supposedly hindrances and turn them into challenges are really motivational people to have around. It's good to have someone who is a part of the conversation who says, you know what, I know it's dangerous, but we can do this. And then can do it. (laughs) That's important too. They don't just say, I think you should do this. They actually say, we can do this, and they become a part of the fixing. And so here's Benaniah stepping into this role and fixing things and just being a person who makes an impression, so much of an impression on David that David puts him in charge of his bodyguard. And so this guy, again, gets a position. And so all these guys because of their prominence, because of their achievements, get a position. Because of their character, get a position. And it's an example for us. You know, there is such a a lack of leadership, especially in the faith community. There are so few chiefs, if you will. So, so few people who will take on the responsibility. There's a lot of people who want to be a part, but few people want to step into that battlefield. And so that's why you have you know, now huge churches that instead of having multiple churches, they just video feed the pastor to all these places. Why? Because well, we don't really have all these leaders. We just have the one. We have the one who's qualified or gifted or whatever they want to call it. And so we'll video him all over the place instead of raising up other people to maybe take that position. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying it's bad or churches that do that are bad, but why would you have to do that unless there was a lack of people who could actually fill those roles? And so I, I think there's something telling there when we have to kind of duplicate ourselves through video instead of through other people. And so this is taking place. Verse 24, let's go through the 30. Among the 30 were, okay, here's a bunch of names. Asiel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem. I just laugh every time I read that. Shama, the Herodite, Elikah, the Herodite, Helez, the Palatite, Ira, the Ekesh from Tekoa, Abizer from Anoth, Sebekiah, the Hushathite, Zalman, the other guy, Mahara, the Naphtalite, Heled, 
son of, you're laughing at me, but I'm not making you read these, son of Benad of, anyway, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, verse 30, goes on, verse 31, there's a few I want to point out to you, um, Jonathan, verse 33, son of Shema, the Herite, verse 34, Elipetel, this guy, son of, that's not the one I'm trying to make, but Eliam, son of Ahithophel, Ahithophel was or Eliam was Bathsheba's father, because we know Ahithophel was her grandfather. Remember, Ahithophel became Absalom's counselor, and we talked about that betrayal. Eliam was actually Bathsheba's father. Hezro the Carmelite, and then also go all the way down to verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite. There were 37 in all. Remember who Uriah the Hittite was. That was Bathsheba's husband. He was a prominent man. And so included in these mighty men are a couple here that stand out because of the relationship to David concerning Bathsheba. And I think that's telling as we move on to chapter 24. You know, again, no one can build a work on their own. David's kingdom rested on the shoulders of all these men. And here it's acknowledged lest we think it's just, oh, David, David, David did. Yeah, David was chosen to fill a role, but that role was actually filled because of all these men who helped him support this place. Any thoughts or questions on this chapter before we do the final chapter? You know, our, our vision will only be as big as we are if we don't include other people. If you want a vision that is going to be greater than you, then you need other people to build that vision. And it's really important. Okay, 24. Now, this is where it gets a little strange. This is a tough chapter. And, of course, it's the last one, figures. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, in First Chronicles, this passage is kind of mirrored, and it says that Satan is the one who actually provoked David to number the people. And so here, the Lord is angry, and he might be referring to Satan inciting David against them, saying, go take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, let's understand why is it wrong to take a census? Why is it wrong for David to number the people? Any thoughts before we go? I mean, some of you probably know. No? I mean, the Lord told Moses to number the people, and that wasn't bad. Why is it bad that David is doing it here? Moses was doing it because he was, as a shepherd, going to be caring for the people and needed to know how many he was caring for. David, as we're going to see, is actually only numbering the men who are fit to fight. And what David is doing is seeing how strong he is. Okay, back when David was a young lad and lived in Ireland. Um, in Psalm 20, David wrote these words, Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. All these years later, David is counting the horses counting the chariots, trusting in how many people he has. And so that is the motivation 
behind David's inquiry. And that is the reason I believe that the Lord is angry. And his anger is burned against Israel, even though it was David. So the king, verse 2, said to Joab and the army commanders, so he told a few of them with them, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, and enroll. This is, okay, we're now, the draft is on. We're going to enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of the Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the king, want to do such a thing? You see, although Joab has been kind of a insubordinate and kind of a treacherous guy, cruel in some ways, he still has some good qualities. He still has the ability to kind of see and say, why do you want to do this? Why would you want to do something like this? This is just striking him as well as being unusual, as being maybe even proudful. Why would you want to do something like this? Verse 4, the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Oreir, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazir. They went to Galead, or Gilead, and the region of Tahtim Hodshai, and on to Dan, Jan, and around towards Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem and on the at the end of nine months and 20 days, almost 10 months, imagine just almost a year. There's another reason. Why do you want us to do this? This is going to be a feat. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there are 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. So there's a lot of men who can fight. And then listen to this, verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before anything happens, something happens to David. After he gets this number, he is conscience-stricken. Has anyone ever been conscience-stricken? Has anyone ever done something and then they've been conscience-stricken? Oh, no. What did I do? I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And and he says, he begs the Lord, take away the guilt of your servant. Because what I've done is foolish. Verse 11, before David got up the next morning, a word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague 
in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. So Gad comes to David and he says, God has told me this is your choice. Something bad's going to happen because of what you've done. And here's your choices. Three years of famine, three months of being pursued by your enemies, or three days of a plague in your land. Which sounds worse? Years usually sounds worse than days, doesn't it? Three years is a long time. Three months is a long time for a 70-year-old man to be running. So maybe three days. But David's answer is actually telling as well. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the first one, the idea there come three years of famine in your land. Okay, he as being king probably would be above the famine. He'd probably have enough. Three years of fleeing from his enemies, but he says, I'll take the plague. Three days of the plague, it, it's at your hands so that whatever happens, I trust you for that. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel. That ought to provoke some questions that morning. Until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruha the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. Why? What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Any questions on this portion? Any thoughts? Oh, come on. you got to have questions here. Why are these people being struck for what David did? Anyone wonder that? Okay, good. I wonder that. I, I think that's a common question. I think it's a realistic question. And we don't have an answer. So there. <laughs> Except that people who are in positions of responsibility have an effect on the people they are responsible for. And and I don't know all the lessons that need to be drawn from there here and there's so many questions I have about this passage and how it took place and and this idea of pestilence or this disease and these things and God then stopping it and why did you start it if you were going to stop it or, or was it something that had to happen because of these things that David did and then, you know, there's so many questions and I don't have the answer to all of them. I, I really don't. But I do see the responsibility for people who have this ability to be over others, to be careful on how you yield your responsibility and your power. And if you use it for your pride, you are going to devastate other people. No one sins against themselves alone. Every time we do something that is detrimental, even to ourselves, 
we bring people in with us. Ask any parent whose child has inflicted themselves with uh, abuse or any things like that. Does it affect just the kid? No, the parent is drawn right into that. The family is drawn right into that. It brings them down. Again, a close um, a friend of mine, son killed himself back in March, and he is still still reeling from the devastation that that has caused to him, to his wife, to his other son and to the extended family, and it goes on and on and on. And we are so connected that I think if we recognize the effect our actions have on other people, it would frighten us. And not only that, the responsibility for those things that we do. How much more so a person who is a king? And so there's a lot of things I don't understand about this passage, but I believe this is one of the telling points. I think this is one of the things that is being declared. David, here you are old, here you are at the end of your life, and now you're looking back and you're getting a little proudful and you're saying, you know, I wonder how strong I am. I'm going to count all the people. And your pride causes devastation to all these other people in a way that I fully don't understand and recognize. Um, And then David pleads, it was me that's done something wrong. Why do these people have to suffer? That's just how it is. You know, it's the dad who is the alcoholic and who uh, is drunk and kills somebody on the road and the family loses the home because of what the dad did. Why, why does my family have to suffer? That's how it is. And, and now he loses his job, and so the family loses their provision, and now the kids you know, are no longer in the same position, and the mom has to go and find the job, and it just affects everybody. Why did this happen? Why do they have to suffer? Because it just works that way. What we do affects other people. And and we know that when it affects us. When we get used, we know that. But can we be blind to when we use people? And I think that's something that we need to be aware of. And, And I talked at the very beginning when we were starting this passage, and what helps me to go through this is God is always more loving than me. God is always more compassionate than me. And so when I read something that to me sounds just uncompassionate and and seems harsh, I have to think, well, why would God do something like that? And there could be a lot more that I don't understand. And the only solace I guess sometimes I can get is recognizing God put his money where his mouth is with Jesus. In other words, God didn't just say, yeah, no, I really do love you. Believe me. No, Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus, who was God stamped in human flesh, suffered so that we can be free from our guilt. And so that has to be in our minds as we read these things 
and because we're talking about the character of God, and that's part of who he is. And again, I don't understand all these things. I don't know anyone who does. All the commentaries that try and make it easy to understand, I still have a thousand questions. You guys have any more? Those are my questions. Yes, David. What we do affects the world around us. What we believe doesn't as much as what we do. And so you can believe in God, but if you do terrible things, you're responsible for what you do, not just what you believe. And there has to be a connection of belief and action. Otherwise, it's, well, James says dead. You know, And so here we see the reality coming to bear. What's amazing about David is he would come back to a place where I think we can all relate to, maybe not in as extreme circumstances where, you know, I, I've messed up my life in this area. I've done something stupid, but I don't want to stay here. I want to change and come back. And David always came back. David always says, I'm sorry, I beg you, don't don't do this. Don't I was wrong. And I appreciate that. That's one of the things I, I like about the scripture is the honesty of I need to change, I need to repent, I'm sorry I screwed up. Whether it's David, whether it's Peter, we have these examples of men who were, you know, examples, but we also get an example of their brokenness and their humility and repentance. I can remember counseling a couple and the husband had lost the house, two vehicles, and his job because of gambling. And they had a number of children. And I remember sitting there talking to them. And, you know, he was just saying, I feel so terrible what I've done. I, I've, I've done this. And, and I remember telling him, you have an opportunity still. Even though you've been a terrible example in this area, you have an opportunity to be an example of what it means for a man to truly repent and change his life. That will give your kids hope for their future if you will really do that. But if you don't, if you just say, I'm sorry, and you continue on gambling and you continue on using their resources for your own sake, then your sorry means absolutely nothing. And unfortunately, he didn't change. He just continued gambling their life away. You know. But there is always the opportunity for us in a position of failure to stop and say, I, I blew it, and I don't want to stay here. I'm sorry. I'm going to change. I'm, I'm going to move from here. And when we do, we show everyone else who is in that same place that it can be done. Every person who was a drug addict, every person who was a drunk, every person who was addicted to pornography, every person who was involved or held captive by whatever it is, if you will take your life and move it from this place to this place, you show that it is able to be done. And if you say, I am sorry, forgive me for this, I am going to live like this, you show the ability for God to work in a heart and change a life. And that's powerful. That's very powerful. Because so many people are captivated 
and stuck in so many different areas. I, I can't, you know, begin to recount all the people who have done desperate things because they want love. I want love and I will do what I have to to try and get love. And they make mistake after mistake after mistake. And to see someone who says, you know what, I'm tired of making mistakes just because I desire this. I'm going to rise up above this and I'm going to change my behavior so that I'll have more respect for myself and live a life that I know I should be living because I am of value. And I'm not going to keep devaluing myself just trying to get something that I want. I'm going to raise the bar and I'm going to change how I live my life. That's an example to how many people. And that's a story that we need to hear. Those are things that need to be told and examples that we need to see. And so I think David, even though this is awful, he still says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm sorry. This was my fault. I take the blame. And that's what we're going to close with here. I'll try and do it quickly here. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruha, the Jebusite. This is the same area where Abraham was going to offer Isaac, same region where Christ again would be crucified in that mountain setting, not the exact same place. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arina looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arina said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David said, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Now, a threshing floor was something that was built up on the top of a mountain. It was a place where they'd put the wheat and they would thresh it, basically bash it and let all the chaff be blown off because at the top of the hill, the breeze would come up over it. And so that's what's being done. I'm going to buy this and I'm going to make an offering to God here at this place so that the Lord will stop this plague. Arunah said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here is threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arunah, gives all this to the king. Arunah also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arunah, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Aranah was generous. Aranah was making this offering. God, I want, I'm helping you, Lord King. I, I want this to, to happen. I can't make you pay for this. But if David would have accepted Aranah's offering, it would have been Aranah's offering, not David's. Because you can't sacrifice something if it doesn't cost you anything. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice, you know, drinking, or I'm going to sacrifice, you know, buying coffee. But I'll let you buy me coffee. I'm not sacrificing anything. 
you know, you're still getting your coffee. A sacrifice is not. A sacrifice is something that costs you. And again, I think this is a telling part of worship because what we offer to God has to be something that costs us. And it's not just a monetary thing. I mean, this is a thing that involves time. It's a thing that involves uh, passions, uh, control. It's a thing that involves so many aspects of our life. But if we're going to give something to God, what's it costing us? See, it's easy to go to a church and to listen and to, you know, talk to people and then leave and it just not affect your life at anything because it doesn't cost you. It's a different thing to go and to be challenged by God in how you are going to now conduct yourself. And you know what? I, I am going to give of my finances towards this or to help in ministry or to help in Haiti or Mexico or something. I am going to give of myself in my time to be a part of something other than just what is for me. And it doesn't have to be even just at the church. It could be just, you know, going and helping out at a a home for people who are retired. I'm just going to do that. Why? Because I just need to give of myself and my time. Or I'm going to go and help children and read books to them or something. I I mean, the list can go on. But it's got to cost you something if you're going to make a difference in what happens in you. If you don't, then it's not going to bring about the change either. And so a powerful passage where David gives us an example that what he is going to do, it's going to make sure that it's his. And he's not going to use that money for his sacrifice. No, I'm going to make sure that it's my sacrifice. I'm going to make sure that I'm the one responsible for this because that's what it has to be. And so he does that. And then the book ends. Kind of a crazy place to end. Um, Seems like there should be a third Samuel. What happened then? But there isn't. We can go into Chronicles, but actually we're not going to. Next week we're going to start the Gospel of John. And so, John. Any thoughts on this closing chapter in 2 Samuel or these verses? Nothing? Lori, you always have questions. Not today, huh? Okay. Yes, Eileen. As one of the mighty men. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure why he wasn't. I mean, he's definitely a prominent part of, you know, the whole book. So, I mean, we see that his brother is given command. Um, maybe he got demoted right before the list came out. It's funny, though. You see his name more than most of these guys throughout this book. Any other thoughts? No? Okay. Second Samuel is in the books. Let's pray. Father, I have so many questions. And in spite of my questions, there are things that jump out and grab my heart and catch my attention that inspire me, that give me reason to pause and think. 
to recognize responsibilities that I have, not just as a father or husband, but even in the role that I have as a pastor here at Genesis. Lord, I um, would hate to cause harm to people because of what I do. And so, Lord, as I walk forward in my life, may I be a person who is righteous and a person who fears you. May I care about what you care about. May I desire to be selfless and compassionate and just. May I never use position or power to leverage things for my sake or for my pride. May I be aware of those things and may I allow others to speak into my life like Joab tried to do with David. May I be receptive to hear those things and may we all be, God. Whatever place and position we are, may we recognize that we have a responsibility for how we conduct ourselves to you. And so may that be inspiration for us, especially as we think of your words, Jesus, when you said, you call me Lord and it's true, and if I, your Lord, wash your feet, what should you do? Lord, you have given us an example that I believe is what the world needs. Hearts that want to serve instead of be served. Hearts that are generous to give instead of get. Love that is sacrificial and not demanding. And so, Lord, may we take these examples to heart and may they affect what we do. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.